Hello and welcome to the Day Minimus podcast. My name is Cameron Moy. I'm a third-year JD student and the current podcast editor at Day Minimus. This is our first episode for the year, so I want to take the opportunity to describe what we'll be doing. Every week I'm planning on putting out an interview with an interesting lawyer. I want to talk to them about what they do, why it matters, and what their experiences have taught them about life within and beyond the law. While I'm not trying to turn this into a podcast about career options, Hopefully the insights they provide might give you some inspiration and guidance about what to do now and later on in your life. For the first three weeks, I'll be doing a series of shows about the compulsory first-year courses, torts, obligations, and principles of public law. In this first show, I spoke to Professor Ian Malkin about torts. For those of you who don't know, Ian is a long-standing member of the Melbourne Law School faculty, having been here since the 1980s, and is an unofficial mascot. Apart from his numerous academic contributions, Ian has been given multiple awards for his contributions to teaching at the university and has been instrumental in the structure and method of the Melbourne JD course. During our conversation, Ian and I talked about numerous topics, including his path to studying law, how he came to Melbourne, what torts are and their role in society, what being a good lawyer means to him, and his music, movie and TV recommendations. Ian's a really fun guy to talk to and listen to, so I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, here is Ian Malkin. Ian Malkin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Cameron. So I want to begin by uh, getting you to talk a bit about yourself. Uh, So you're not from around these parts, are you? No, no. Um, So look, I moved to Melbourne. It's a very long story. I hope we have hours, really. (laughs) Uh, yeah, look, at I moved here in 1986 uh, to come to teach at Melbourne Uni, basically. So I've been here uh, 35 years or something in May, I think it'll be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, not from around these parts. <laughs> How did you come to study law in the first place? That's funny. Um, look, I guess I'd probably always had some sort of weird interest in it, but not as much as I know some people have growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to argue, I suppose, <laughs> which ha 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 sort of suits itself to lawyering, unfortunately. Um, look, I did arts degree, which I loved, and it was in um, politics and economics, was part of either arts or commerce. And I loved it actually, and it was very much taught as a sort of social welfare type subject. Uh, it was really good. But then in third year, sort of thought, what am I gonna do with my life? And I think that's not an unusual feeling sometimes. Mm. Um, I got offered actually to do honors in various arts disciplines and you had to do statistics as part of the honors degree. And I thought, no, this is maths. There's no way I was going to do that. So I thought, okay. And then um, look, I was really thinking at the time either journalism or law, because at the time I was sort of around Watergate or post Watergate around that period. And everybody wanted to be a Woodward or Bernstein. And um, then I thought, no, no, journalism sounds too competitive, <laughs> which is ridiculous. So then I decided to do law, uh, you know, I had to do the LSAT and the whole spiel and, um, did a, went to a uni that was local in Manitoba in Canada. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, do you think that the Canadian legal education system produces a different sort of lawyer to the Australian legal education system? Because from reading um, Canadian cases, they seem a lot more outcome focused than Australian cases. I don't know if that's true as a rule okay. or not, but it, it, look at back in the day when I studied, um, I don't know that we really thought about that, I'll be honest, but mm. I think you did become familiar with certain judges as particularly good judges. And I, you know, in terms of the reasoning and the persuasion and articulation of policy and so on. 
And I remember that at the time, uh, one in particular, his name is Boralaskin. What was very unusual about him or interesting about him, which we don't do here is he was, I think he was pulled straight out of academia onto the Ontario Court of Appeal mm. and then onto the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, so he hadn't worked as a, well, I don't know, but I mean, he didn't have a huge history as a barrister and so on, I don't think. Now, someone might correct me if I'm wrong, but it was very interesting. And I've always thought, why don't we do that with some of the really you know, fabulous constitutional law lawyers in the country who are working at universities, put them on the bench. Yeah. Why do they have to practice, um, especially at an appellate level? Uh, so, I've, so I think in Canada, I was sort of impressed with that. I think certainly over the last number of decades now, um, the Charter of Rights certainly has influenced decision-making and I guess maybe the role of the court. Uh, when I went through law school, there was no Charter of Rights. Um, when I was at a law firm, I think it may be the second year of it, Trudeau, not bloody, um, what's, the, what's the young Trudeau? So, uh, Justin, so Gary Justin. Trudeau. Look, I can't take him seriously. I'm sorry, because <laughs> I knew his father, who was amazing, Pierre Trudeau. Uh, per, yeah, sorry. Um, yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. So it's quite yeah. funny, you know, both of them sex symbols at the times in their own <laughs> ways. But Pierre Trudeau was an amazing, he was justice minister uh, in the liberal government. And he brought in the decriminalization of homosexuality, for example. His big, the, the big phrase around that was something about the government should be in the bedrooms or something like that. I forget how it went, but it was really, you know, in the 60s, it was the late 60s, I think. Anyway, he's prime minister, not his first run. He brings in the charter. And you have to think that is an amazing sort of commitment to human rights in that, if you really think about it, you're talking about parliament itself giving away its, um, its, its decision-making powers to the courts. So it's a mm. lot of trust in the courts and separation of powers and so on. So that was remarkable. The point of this was when I went through, the charter was, wasn't around. Yeah. Since then, you know, every single subject would have the charter as part of it. So it wouldn't just be an adjunct to a commons course. It would be part of criminal law, it would be part of everything. So I'm sure that's one of the reasons the judgments might appear very different, I suppose. Mm. But we still followed, you know, when I went through the British common law, it was sort of a huge influence on Canadian. We looked at Australian leading torts cases um, that had gone to the Privy Council. Even if they weren't binding, we still looked at Wagon Mount, it was a big deal. Um, we looked at, um, I don't know, if, this won't be a test. We looked at, uh, what's it called? Hargrave and Goldman, the fire in Western Australia. And I remember as a student in Canada thinking, what's 40 degrees centigrade? It made no <laughs> sense to me, sort of in Canada in the winter where it's minus 30 or something. Um, so we you know, we very much looked at British common law at, and Privy Council cases, I guess, as well as, um, of course, our own domestic byproduct. Yeah. Yeah, so how did you come to study tort law in particular anyway? Yeah, that's sort of strange. Um, look at, um, I worked at a law firm for two years doing criminal law as defense mm -hmm. work, which was, and the, it was one of the few firms in Winnipeg that did virtually nothing but crim, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a bit of family law, one person at corporate stuff, but about seven or eight of the lawyers uh, did crim. And with another firm in the city, probably did by far like, you know, 80% of the cases, aside from legal right. Um So I did that for a couple of years. Huge eye-opener. I mean, I grew up enormously. I don't think I'll forget a moment of that 
horrendous two years, but it was pretty soul destroying in some ways, but also, what's the word? Inspiring in some ways, um, but I really quit and thought I can't do this more than two years and traveled Europe, came back, thought, what am I gonna do with my life? Went to human rights commission, a couple other short-term jobs, and then thought, what am I really gonna do with my life? and went and studied in London and did masters there. But it was interesting, it was mainly in international law as well as crim, mm. then came back. I loved it, that was fantastic. With some really great scholars like Rosalind Higgins who ended up on the ICJ and she was formidable, really scary, but you know, fantastic at running a seminar. She did one of those things that, you know, who can tell us about the Upper Silesia case? And, you know, we had read 500 pages of other stuff, but no one had read that. And as soon as she said that, everybody would look down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of those truly Socratic. Anyway, did that, came back to Canada, I thought, what am I going to do? And then I got a job with the Law Reform Commission and was actually looking at compensation schemes, coincidentally, and was looking at gaps and overlaps among the crimes comp, workers comp motor vehicle compensation kids across the country. Then I decided maybe I want to go into academia. And I just wrote letters at the time, as you can imagine, hard copy. Well, I must have typed them, typed letters to all Australian and New Zealand universities and the odd Canadian one. And I heard from the University of Tasmania, they were the first ones saying, would you get in touch? It was by telex, like we're talking the dark ages. And I thought, oh my God, Tasmania really sounds like the end of the earth. I'm just can't respond. So I didn't respond. I was, got scared. And then I heard from Melbourne, it was Harold Luntz, you know, the doyen of tort law in Australia. Uh, he was dean at the time for about three years. And he wrote me a letter and said, would I get in touch? We had a phone conversation. That was that. He probably was impressed by the compensation work project at the Law Reform Commission, because I didn't realize how much it fit into his worldview. Right. And I got an offer for a three-year contract. And I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. Oh God, what am I doing? It's very scary. It's very scary. Because I hadn't taught before, hadn't written before. I'd done well on the masters, but you know, I wasn't sure about this. And then I really thought, well, the onus is on the university if they're gonna hire someone sight unseen for three years. Mm. <laughs> and then I sort of figured after two years, I would have a sense of whether it's for me or not, and whether it's yeah. for them, I guess. Anyway, so then I caught here, and as it happens, there were two subjects where there's a gap. One was a, used to be called legal process and the other was torts. So that's really how I fell into it. Um, yeah. I have to say, I can, I don't mind broadcasting this. You know, when I went through uni, I got a C plus in torch, which was about a 67. Mm. <laughs> you know, I really yeah. didn't understand <laughs> it, I have to say. Um, it's funny how you have to learn to understand stuff if you're gonna teach it. Really interesting. Uh, I'm sure it's helpful. <laughs> yeah, it helps. But it's interesting, you sort of think, okay, mm. I can unravel this. I don't think when I went through, anyone ever explained anything <laughs> like they you know they taught you rules and so on but I don't think they well maybe two teachers did but a lot of them just never told you what a hypothetical problem was why you even do one I mean mm. it's quite interesting how much better the teaching is in this era I've got to say yeah with all due yeah. respect to the University of Manitoba um, <laughs> but I don't think I ever understood the method behind the madness of some of the assessment and the rest of it yeah, I think I found that as well with some of my undergraduate courses that understanding why we were doing yeah. things and how everything fits together, it makes life a lot easier. You know, I, I mean, I never got in high school too. I did physics. I didn't know why we did these experiments. I had no idea what they had to do with the real world or anything. Mm. I think actually explaining objectives is critical 
to an yeah. understanding or enjoying what you're doing. Otherwise, you're just ticking boxes for the sake of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk now about um, torts and the torts course yep. in general. So what are torts? It's probably an unanswerable question, but if you could have a crack at it. Look, I should say Brad Jessup, who's completely brilliant, is the coordinator this year. And he and I have worked together a lot since, gosh, I think it's maybe 2012 or 13 for a long time. We've got a really good team this year. So hopefully, you know, everybody will enjoy it. Mm. Look, a lot of people have had, well, everyone will have had some exposure to it in LMR. And we don't teach it in LMR to teach torts. We're using torts cases, say, as examples to understand how do you find the reason, how do you identify the important bits in the reasoning and how do you unravel the decision and so on. So I guess torts ultimately are about civil wrongs. Um, it's all about sort of, I guess, organization of society in a way, um, in terms of obligations we have to each other without ever having formal agreements with each other. And that could be with the words we use in defamation law. It could be with not going onto people's land without invitation or implied invitation, trespass to land. You don't violate someone's bodily integrity, the trespass torts, uh, assault and battery, false imprisonment, uh, and of course, negligence that, you know, there are certain standards to which we have to adhere, whether we're driving, acting as a doctor, acting as an accountant, without well, they're happy to have had an agreement with all the people that you might affect by your conduct. So that's the mm -hmm. basic idea. I love it because it does straddle somewhere between, you know, formal agreements. So you can have torts that are also contractual, tort breaches that might also be contractual breaches, but also it's very closely connected to the criminal law in a lot of ways. So we mm -hmm. look at all these civil claims. There may be lots of other stuff going on where the defendant might be, charged criminally that we wouldn't read about because it might not raise something legally interesting in criminal law, I don't know, but also even regulatory offenses, uh, uh, summary conviction offenses to do with driving would probably go hand in hand with carelessness while driving. Um, so I find it quite interesting and people don't realize it's, it is about standard setting in your community and relationships and who has obligations to, and what are they to one another that are often, say, in negligence, reasonable. So one of the things we bang on about is it doesn't mean you have to act perfectly or with perfection. It means reasonableness. Well, how do you determine what that means in a particular context? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I wanted to pick up on the uh, overlap you mentioned with criminal law and just sort of try to work out what the difference is between the two. So there is, as you said, a lot of overlap. What does tort law try to do differently or what is it trying to achieve that is different from criminal law? That's really interesting. Um, look, at, in the past, and we're going to talk about this uh, in the first seminar, or it's in Tanya Voon's video, and hopefully we'll be able to tease this out across the streams. Um, uh, it's much more about, I suppose, compensation, trying to put someone back in the position they were before the incident. And certainly that's the case with negligence law. Negligence law per se is not meant to punish. And in fact, you can't even get certain kinds of damages uh, to punish. Leave that to the criminal law, for example. Where they're even closer though, I guess, is battery type offenses in tort or other torts as opposed to so in criminal law. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the difference 
key differences are, I suppose, in tort, you are the party bringing the claim against the defendant. You hire your lawyer, your barrister, you run the proceedings, you're a party. Criminal law, you're a witness. I mean, you don't get to choose who's gonna run the case. I don't think you get, I don't know how much choice you would have and how it's run. So I think there is an empowerment possibility with tort that might not be the case in criminal law. Now, I don't want to over-romanticize that as well, because litigation ain't easy and it's not for everyone by any means, nor should it be. Um, I think we've seen this come up in abuse cases and violence cases more often in the last number of years, where some people have said tort law can offer a bit of therapeutic justice, or I think words to that effect. Now, again, I don't want to over-romanticize that possibility. Um, other differences clearly are the differences in standards of proof. So you might, the Crown might fail in a criminal law case, you might succeed in the tort adjunct case. Um, so I think in some areas it has a lot to offer. Uh, I got to say, I think in the driving scenarios and probably workplace, much less to offer. Uh, people are not gonna change their behavior as drivers because they because you were found liable in a negligence action where $2 million goes over to me. You're not paying, it's coming from insurance. I'm not gonna drive, I'm, I'm not gonna change my behavior having read about Cameron Moyer's case. You know? mm. If they would find me 500 bucks for texting while driving, which is what you had done, that might make a difference. So I think that sort of deterrent impact of torts is negligible in a driving context. You know. Uh, but it does provide compensation, but only to people that succeed. And it's hard to succeed. And not on duty of care in driving, it's obvious. But on breach, proving a wrongful act, that's hard to do. And causation can be really hard to do. That's why we have compensation schemes, which takes us back to Luntz and what I was working on in Manitoba. But it's a, it's a really important gap filler where torts just doesn't work successfully, yeah. I don't think. But I do think where it's most valuable maybe these days, it's something Kirby used to talk about a lot and is right about a lot in his judgments, is um, as a check on power, power imbalances, maybe, and I don't wanna, again, overindulge that possibility. Um, there's some really good cases using, of all things, trespass to land against the police for coming onto mm. people's property where they weren't permitted to do so. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get legislation that permits it, but the fact is, as a common law principle, it's a bit of a check on power. Same thing, some of the negligence cases against the police, where there's still room to do that. It's got to be an operational activity. Tort law can have a valuable role to play. But I don't think that's about the compensation. I think people are bringing claims to standard set, educate, sort of an ombudsman role some people have written about. Um, other areas, though, even in negligence, though, where I've written about this and did work with this fabulous organization um, is sometimes bringing claims say against prison authorities for not providing clean needles in a jail when you know there's drug use going on. So, but that is a bit of an ombudsman role too. You know, it's a regulatory mechanism. Other ones are written about uh, the introduction of injecting supervised medical injecting facilities. I mean, what role does TOR play in that? Is it a fear of um, um, liability safe or not cleaning up an area where you think there's a role toward complaint. 
but those are on the margins. So I think it's got a role to play in, I suppose, providing an avenue for redress for marginalized communities and so on. But again, I don't want to overstate that because there've been plenty of failures in that sort of litigation. Sure, sure. Lots of failures, <laughs> but <laughs> they might be signals to politicians to do something about the problem. Mm. So it can have consequences beyond the litigation. Yeah, okay. So how are these uh, issues handled differently? How are torts handled differently both across the common law world and within civil law jurisdictions? Well, I think, say, on duty of care as a proposition in civil law jurisdictions, it's not an issue, it's a given. So the mm -hmm. focus is often going to be on breach and causation. Also, previous cases, as we know, have less impact as precedents on behavior and so on. In terms of different jurisdictions, look, at again, I think we're pretty similar to the UK and Canada. I guess a major difference here, though, now is, um, although without, well, I should, I'll take that back a bit, without any influence of the Charter of Rights and in the UK, the Human Rights Act. Now, to the degree they influence civil claims is very different from public. It influences it largely in public authority cases, you know, where you might look for something. Um, again, sorry for a bit of a digression. I do think some of the best torts cases are ones that intersect with human rights law. And there are a couple of English ones that are fantastic. Um, and I think people don't realize is that emanated from torts or torts related type of material. One is called Osmond against the UK involving the police. Another one, well, I'm not sure it's tort exactly, but it's called um, the Sunday Times case. Well, it is because it came out of thalidomide and it's one of the biggest cases that went to the European Court of Human Rights. And it was about freedom of speech, okay? Freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. And when a country can claw back on that, but it emanated from the Sunday Times newspaper trying to print lots of articles about the thalidomide tragedy. So it came from, in a sense, what otherwise is a tort law domain, in a sense, where you're suing a manufacturer, severe harm that happened to children in, in mm. their most severe circumstances. So that intersecting between tort and human rights law, I found really fascinating. Um, we would not have that much in Australia, <laughs> or is it, has come up in the UK in a couple of big cases, and that's a long time ago. And uh, since then, I suppose. Um, other big differences? Okay, yeah, this is the one that I really meant to get to, is um, the legislative changes that were the result of the IP panel report back in the early 2000s. Um, that led to major changes as to what you can do within negligence law, let alone what you can recover. So they have across the country legislatures, what could I say, tampered with the common law. And I'm not saying the common law is perfect by any means, but what they've done is made things harder at many junctures, much less so in Victoria than say New South Wales. Mm. New South Wales is really hard to sue government in tort. In Victoria, there's a signal to making it harder, but they haven't cut it off the way they have in many respects in New South Wales. So I think that's different. I have to admit though, I'm not au fait with how much 
litigation or tort litigation has been curtailed in Canada and the UK, but I don't think it's like in Australia. And the real problem in Australia also is we have so many different states and territories doing different things. So as LMR students would know, in New South Wales, there's this case called Russell and Edwards, you could sue, forget it. I mean, the legislation makes it impossible to succeed. Well, the way the court interpreted the legislation made it impossible to succeed, but it was, the, you know, they were adhering to what parliament wanted. In Victoria, you'd succeed. And you think that's a mess. I mean, that's just nuts. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to move on to another topic now to um, questions about professional ethics um, mm. as a lawyer. So what do you think the role of a good lawyer is in all of this? In, um, so within torts, within um, academia, just in general, what is the role of a good lawyer? Um, I guess the first thing would be, and did mention this at the end of a talk that students had in LMR um, from a couple of our colleagues. Um, first of all, to recognize one's privilege in being a law student and a lawyer. You know, and with that privilege, this is a Kirby line, comes responsibilities, um, you know, and I think responsibilities to seriously trying to see justice done I think to be outspoken when you see problems because lawyers do have particular analytical skills, whether written and or oral, uh, to speak out on behalf of people that may not have that opportunity. So I guess there's privilege and with the privilege comes, I think a need to act where you see injustice being done on behalf of individuals or the community or a demographic group perhaps. Um, you raised the issue of ethics, and I was thinking about that. Uh, uh, I don't know what's happened, and I might say especially in the U.S., <laughs> like in terms of where ethics have gone by the wayside, like in an incredible way, it would seem, mm. in terms of what we see having gone on in the last four or five years, in business as well as politically among politicians, um, as well as lawyers and so on. So I don't know what's happened. At the same time, Thank goodness for the fantastic lawyers in the US who have checked power at every opportunity. So look, I'm not on Twitter, but I'll read different people's tweets. Yeah. And my goodness, there's some amazing people there um, who have contributed their knowledge and skills to make sure that voter suppression, for example, is minimized. So around the election and so the election, all those lawsuits had to be defended and you had to call upon lawyers with wonderful ethics, values and skills to withstand them. And they did, you know, so I think there's a role for lawyers to really grapple with um, injustices and take the perpetrators to task. Mm. Yeah. So we do have a public duty to exercise our skills for the community rather than just um, sort of, advancing individual yeah. gain, yeah. And I think, look at a lot of former students and someone who worked at commercial firms, and that's great, also love the opportunities to do the pro bono work that the commercial firms offer. And mm. all of most of them would have, do that sizably, so good on them for doing that. Yeah. So I want to pose to you an ethics question that we usually get in um, disputes and ethics which is, uh -huh. um, 
So a long-standing and highly valued client approaches you one day and asks you to carry out a series of transactions which would make it hard for an outside observer to track the movement of some money. On its own, the transactions aren't illegal, but they're obviously meant to hide something suspicious. What do you do? Tell them, I guess, that that's what this looks like. And tell them you won't take the case. Mm. So you would reject them? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's a hard question? No. Yeah, that's that's my attitude. I think <laughs> How I'm much were you meant to write about it? But maybe I've made it too simple. I mean, no, no, I you're think not obliged that's... to take the comment. Yeah, that's, yeah. I, I think that that's a perfectly reasonable answer. I think that a lot of people do tend to overthink that question, though, yeah. and think that they need to find a grayness. I think, um, and again, I go back to watching what's been happening in the US and so on. There have been a lot of, people have said, this is the moment, I'm not sure that is, but say in your working life, where you have to mm. say no, where you have to say, no, that's not possible. I mean, people have to stand up for doing the right thing. And we see far too many Republican yeah. senators and Congress people who have not, I mean, they've had so many opportunities to do the right thing and they just won't do it because of their fear of what? Losing business, losing uh, lobbyists. I don't know what it is. I don't know that this is all that different. You know, if you fear it's crossing the line into something impermissible or illegal, or maybe not illegal, but immoral, don't do it. You feel yeah. better. <laughs> you know, you will. You know, someone else might do it, but maybe everyone won't. Mm. I think people have to speak up and stand their ground. It's not, it's not easy, you know, because yeah. there could be a lot riding on it. But if more people do it, it's easier, I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I might not have done very well on the question in D&E. It depends how much more they want it. I could, I yes, could fluff I, it out. I could fluff it out more, I suppose, by a couple hundred words. But, you know, on the one hand. I think, I think that that's a perfectly reasonable answer just to say, no, it's wrong. Yeah. I'll explain why, but in a little paragraph, not three pages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just want to start wrapping up now. Yeah. How have you tried to make yourself a better lawyer, academic, and person? A wish, a better lawyer and academic. Yeah, lawyer, academic, or person. Just have you tried, tried to improve yourself? Mm. Um, that's really interesting. Man, especially at this place, like at the law school, just surrounded by so many fabulous people and students, colleagues, and so on. Um, just learning so much from others, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good answer. Listening more. I'm not a I am actually a good listener, but I talk over people a lot as well. <laughs> I try to pull that back, but I'm not very good at that. But you know, but I like listening more and just so many people have so many good ideas and things to offer and make you think about things you wouldn't have thought about. And that never stops. Like it never stops actually. Um, I think that's probably made me a better person. I hope so. I think I'm... Um, pretty empathetic so I can understand where people are coming from and I think I'm quite sensitive to that sort of thing but just listening to where someone's coming from isn't the end of it it's then trying to help I suppose if there's an issue that, where there might be some need for help I don't know mm -hmm. I think I, I think I've become a better advocate I guess through being surrounded by people who are fabulous advocates yeah, yeah. 
So final question, do you have any recommendations in terms of you know, books, TV shows, or just underrated people that are worth paying attention to? Look at so many things to recommend. So music, <laughs> music, gosh, Linda Ronstadt. Oh my God, she's amazing. Probably one of the most beautiful voices ever, but also especially her, she did this series in the eighties, I think Torch songs, like it's sort of all these big band era songs. They're amazing. She did three DVDs or that, probably CDs, albums <laughs> on them as well as some of her other stuff. But others look at Dylan, if I'm in the mood, Mm-hmm. But Dylan all the time, but not always Dylan singing Dylan. I have to be in the mood. But certainly yeah. Joan Baez, I don't know if you've heard of her, amazing yeah. 60s. There's an album called Any Day Now of her singing just Dylan songs that is extraordinary. It really mm-hmm. is gorgeous. Her work, Simon and Garfunkel, this is very 60s and 70s, <laughs> what could I say? 60s mainly. Um, also Kev Carmody and Tidus, uh, Garamal, um, this is women, uh, uh, an Inuit singer from, um, well, Northern Canada. This fabulous Susan Aglukark, just an amazing voice. So those sorts of singers and musicians. TV, this will really date me, but honestly, it's so funny. But you guys wouldn't even have heard of her. Mary Tyler Moore Show, best comedy ever, 1970s. Yeah. and was on the cusp of feminism. And she portrayed the... It was the first TV show where she played a woman protagonist that wasn't a widow or married single woman with a career sort of thing. And it was just amazing at the time, even. And The Sopranos, that's at the other end of the spectrum. I could go on, why well, am? <laughs> and I was thinking in terms of books, there's this fantastic one called The Implosion Conspiracy. Just remember reading it in law school. It was about um, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, who were the electric heated, I think electric chair for conspiracy in the McCarthy era as being accused of being Russian spies during the Cold War. And it's about the proceedings and everything around it. It's really chilling. Um, they're mm-hmm. quite famous names, um, Julius and Ethel Rosemary. It also raised all sorts of issues to do with anti-Semitism and all sorts of other stuff going on at the time. And then if you want some lighthearted, um, also book, Secret River, amazing, tragic. It's one of those ones where from page one, you know, this is heading towards doom. But, you know, this isn't not gonna end well, and it doesn't, but it's so good. But in terms of movie TV, if you wanna laugh, honestly, um, and I put it up on my web thing for LMR, it's called The Paper Chase. Have you ever heard of it? My dad has recommended it to me. Yeah. 1970s movie with John Houseman bring Professor Kingsfield, the contracts teacher Mm. at Harvard. And he scares the shit out of all the students and so on. And it's just hilarious because it's really bad. But at the time, just loved it, you know. Um, But I actually, they did a TV show coming from it as well. And he was on it. And as I think I just finished, Laura was doing it. Oh, it was just like everything for you. But it was all full of all these stereotypes and so on. And But it's hilarious because it's, you know, the Socratic method in action and the study groups and the rest of it. It is really worth watching. I'm not sure what's available. Um, Mm. But anyway, I would recommend that if you can get a hold of it, but it's really bad, I have to say, in retrospect. Okay, well, thank you for giving your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Same. 
And there you have the abrupt end to our conversation. We're planning on putting in some musical transitions in the future to make this all sound a bit smoother. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to come back next week when I interview Will Partlett about principles of public law. We discuss the rule of law, why it's important and possible threats to it in Australia, public international law and why we should have faith in it, and the importance of lawyers in ensuring the maintenance of democracy. Until then, enjoy your first week at Melbourne Law School.